this is one of a number of events all over the university that are being held in connection with the, the visit uh, that we're very excited about this semester uh, of uh, Vaclav Havel um, and his uh, sort of official keeper, visit coordinator, and impresario, Gregory Mosher, who's director of the University Arts Initiative and uh, renowned theater director, will come up to welcome everybody and explain the overarching rubric. Thanks, Nick. Um, I, I don't want to explain, really. I just want to welcome you on behalf of the Arts Initiative. I, this is the 15th, unbelievable as that may seem, uh, event in the first four weeks of uh, President Havel's visit. There are another three weeks to go, another six events. Um, the general idea was to connect Havel's life as a writer, as a creative artist, and um, his, his life not so much as a political figure, but as a, an eloquent citizen, as a person who's really helped define citizenship in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and we've had everybody from Bill Clinton to Orhan Pamuk, who we were lucky enough to grab several weeks before he won the Nobel Prize. Sunday night we were um, at Lincoln Center, another of our partners, with Michael Moore and the documentarian Rory Kennedy, who's at work on a piece about Abu Ghraib that HBO is uh, screening this spring that I'm looking forward to seeing. James Seamus, who's a professor here, produced Brokeback Mountain and many other things. Um, uh, Havel delivered the core lecture to the contemporary civilization students at Columbia College, and it's really been a thrill. It's been interesting to see that every panel, none of which got any direction from our office, has really grappled with this question of citizenship. They've moved immediately to the citizenship issue and not focused on, on the art so much, although all of these panels had artists on them. And in America, citizenship takes you pretty quickly to democracy, and democracy takes you very quickly to the question of information. And um, it was kind of irresistible to call Nick uh, a few months ago and ask if he would be kind enough to be a part of all of this, which obviously he did. Um, I didn't know at the time this whole question of information and critical thinking and evaluating contemporary events was going to emerge as such a theme. Um, but in a sense, I'm not surprised, and it just makes me all the happier that we're doing this tonight. And thank you, Nick, for hosting, and thank you all for being a part of this. And thank you all for coming. Hello, everyone. My name is Sri Srinivasan, and I run the New Media Program here at the school, and we're thrilled to have yet another uh, New Media Program uh, and another event here. Uh, as you, some of you might recall, many of you were here last week when we had a panel about the changing media landscape and we talked about some interesting changes that have happened around us, including the Washington Post winning an Emmy Award this year. Since then, an interesting thing that's happened is that Reader's Digest got sold for $1.6 billion. But you might also know that that's the same amount of money for which YouTube was sold. $1.6 billion, so that's something to ponder. Uh, we have a terrific lineup for you tonight uh, as we talk about democracy and the internet politics and the web, and you will uh, hear an introduction of our speakers very shortly, but my job is to tell you about our moderator, who is my boss and dean at the journalism school. Some of you may recall that he wrote 
a, an article in the New Yorker about uh, some aspects of web journalism. It was, it was entitled Amateur Hour, and uh, it certainly got a lot of attention in the blogosphere and elsewhere, and in fact, one of the most scathing uh, critiques of it was written by one of our panelists up here. And uh, in, the, in the spirit of, uh, of, of uh, engaging uh, the folks who are talking about the reporting that comes out of the school and out of um, the work that we do, we thought it'd be exciting to have Rebecca uh, McKinnon also join our panel. But um, I wanted to uh, tell you that uh, Nick has been a tremendous supporter of the web and new media programs here at the school and has been pushing us to really advance the work that uh, we've already been doing over the last 12 years of new media journalism at Columbia. And in almost every conversation we have, he keeps saying that the, one of the most important things he can do as a dean and we can do as a school is figure out where all of this is going and make sure our students are at the forefront of the discussion, the teaching, and execution of online journalism. So without further ado, the dean of the journalism school and the uh, Wayward Press uh, columnist for The New Yorker, Please welcome Nicholas Lemon. Um, thanks for coming, everybody. Let me say first uh, that this is billed as being from 7 to 9. It is after 7. We're starting a little late. I also don't believe that any panel discussion should last two hours just for sort of human rights type reasons of the audience. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to end at, say, quarter to 9. Uh, the panelists will talk mostly, I'll ask them questions, and then uh, we'll talk back and forth with each other. We have the usual mics set up and all that stuff. A um, Little bit about the background to this event. Um, we're sort of pulling two strands together. Uh, Sri supervises a series of new media lectures that we have here, um, and there was one a week ago tonight, I guess. Um, Meanwhile, Gregory, who was just up here, came to me several months ago and asked us to stage an event in, in connection with President Havel's visit. Um, and we sort of put the two together um, and decided, to, well, I should say just as a, a sort of um, sign of what life is like around here, we said politics and the internet. I think. Uh, Sri is such an internet person that he took that to mean, will politicians screw up the internet? <laughs> um, and I'm such a political person that I took it to mean, um, will the internet affect politics? Um, so we may actually not end up talking about my controversial article on citizen journalism, although we may too, uh, but, but you know that was about sort of how does citizen journalism rate as journalism? That's not, at least at the start, our official topic here. Instead, we have three highly distinguished and interesting panelists, all of whom uh, I think they have some things that aren't in common. One thing they all have in common is they've all started terrific websites. Um, and all three websites either intentionally or unintentionally uh, may be in the political change business. In the spirit of President Havel, the question before us, in effect, is 
what happened in czechoslovakia and elsewhere in the soviet bloc in the late eighty's and early ninety's could cataclysmic and positive political well i guess those are two contradictory things could very major and positive political change occur elsewhere even here in the united states as a result of the advent of this miraculous new medium of communications i'll tell you briefly who our three panelists are they don't need a lot of introduction then i'll sort of pose a question to each then I'll pose more questions. They may pose questions to each other. We'll sort of get a freewheeling discussion, I hope, and after, after a while, I'll invite you all to, to uh, join it. Um, I'm going on my side, left to right, on your side, I guess that'd be right to left. Uh, Sheila Carnell is a new uh, member of our faculty as of September. She is the inaugural holder of our Tony Stabile Chair in Investigative Journalism. Um, and has spent most of her career, uh, basically all of her career in the Philippines where she is a legendary uh, investigative uh, journalist and, and essentially a major force in politics as well. Um, among many distinctions, uh, she started a website called, well, an institution called the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalists uh, PCIJ.org, can we throw that up there? Um, which um, is, you know, dangerous statement to make, possibly the best repertorial website in the entire world, at least that I've seen. Uh, a really amazing uh, achievement. Um, and, and Sheila has, has uh, come to the United States, uh, but we hope only in order to be more globally oriented, not less. Um, Chuck DeFeo, uh, uh, who sits in the middle, is comes out of the world of Republican politics um, and has sort of gone into the place where politics and the internet meet. Um, he was the head of the internet branch of the uh, Bush-Cheney 04 campaign, then went to work for Salem Communications, uh, which is a uh, media company mainly in the business of, of Christian broadcasting based in uh, Calabasas, California, uh, home to many well-known conservative talk show hosts, and has now started um, a website called townhall.com, which you see here, um, which uh, is is it journalism? Is it politics? Chuck's going to tell us. It's a little of both, which is very much in the tradition of American journalism um, and uh, certainly aims to use the web to create political change. Um, the farthest away from me panelist is Rebecca McKinnon, uh, who's a research fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, which is possibly the leading sort of think tank on the internet and its effects on society. It's at Harvard Law School. Um, she is just about to relocate to Hong Kong, though. She's essentially an Asia hand, China hand mostly. Uh, she worked for CNN in Asia for a decade, um, then came back uh, to, to be at the Berkman Center and has started uh, globalvoices.com, another terrific uh, website um, 
which if you see all those countries' names, has voices from all over the world talking about many things, including uh, politics. Um, let me start with you, Rebecca, and um, ask you in general, and in particular in China, um, when the internet first came along, many people thought in societies that are not as completely open and democratic as the United States, the internet's going to sort of really break everything apart on the model of change in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and China was often cited as a, as a prime example. The idea was you, you couldn't not have freedom of speech, freedom of political expression, and uh, freedom of the press, as we understand it, in a country where the internet existed. Um, I don't know if you ever thought that, but I'm curious uh, whether you think that is overselling the political potential of the internet in general and in particular in China. Thanks, Nick. Um, I spent nine years in China from 92 until 2001 working as a journalist. And so I was there when the internet showed up in China. And I think really all of us thought at the time that there was very little chance that the Chinese Communist Party was going to survive the advent of the internet. And we were all doing quite a lot of stories about how this, this was going to be the beginning of the end. Um, it's not quite turned out that way. It's, it's turned out to be much more complicated than that. And I think the China case really throws into relief how the internet can be a very revolutionary tool for political change in certain contexts, but not in all contexts, or at least not immediately. Um, so in China, what happened was when people started to use the internet, the feeling was, well, there, there's no way that the government's going to be able to control citizens' access to information. There's no way that the government's going to be able to control what people put online from within China, from without China. This, this is basically the dikes are, are broken. But what, what the Chinese government has done is created the world's most sophisticated system of internet censorship. And while it's true it can be circumvented by people who are technically savvy enough to do so, the majority of China's internet users are not managing to circumvent the blocks. And so, for instance, if you try to go to Human Rights Watch or any number of sites that deal with issues related to human rights abuses in China or religious sites, a whole range of sites, when you try and go to such a site from within China using a Chinese internet service, you will get an error page on your browser. It will just say this page cannot be found. And that's what Chinese people jokingly call the Great Firewall of China. And yes, it, like the Great Wall, it is not impenetrable. If, if you know how to get around it, you can get around it. But in aggregate, what it means is that the majority of Chinese using the internet which is now about 8 to 10 percent of the population, um, the majority of Chinese using the internet are not coming across information just by happenstance that 
will show them alternative views of what's happening, particularly on the most sensitive subjects. Now, yes, people do have a lot more space for discourse than they had before. You have a lot of satire. You have, you have somewhere between 15 and 30 million bloggers in China now, and people are talking more elliptically, more critically of the government than ever before. You have movie stars and, and novelists and poets becoming famous thanks to the internet who never would have been able to do so because they never would have gotten past gatekeepers in the past. And so it is having a socially liberalizing effect, but the government has been much more successful than anybody ever imagined at pinpointing those types of activities online that might lead to political organizing and political change. And they make sure that those types of sites get censored if, if they're coming from abroad. They make sure that companies that are hosting content within China, which means blog hosting companies, search engines, and so on, both Chinese companies and foreign companies are censoring stuff and are hiring dozens, if not hundreds of people to do so, so that if people start talking in great numbers about a riot in, in, a, in, a, in a village where the police maybe shot some people, and if people start indicating the desire to organize around that, that stuff gets stamped out of the internet within China very quickly. And so what that does is it prevents any kind of groundswell of organizing so that while you do have some bloggers who managed to post quite a lot of data and information about corruption, any conversations that lead to potential to organize are snuffed out effectively is, is, enough to prevent movements from developing that could create any kind of alternative leaders or any alternative power structures that could organize in any coherent way politically against the current structure. Is it uh, urban legend or true, this mm -hmm. statistic you hear about 75,000 censors, internet censors in China? Yeah, I think that may be a little bit urgent, urban legend. Um, I, I think it's, I think I know who may have been the origin of that. And, and, <laughs> it wasn't and you, huh? It wasn't me, it's, it's somebody I know. I think it was kind of an estimate on that person's part and the problem is, is that while the government certainly does have a bureaucracy, not only within certain agencies of the Ministry of Information industry and various, you know, telecoms industry and so on, and in the provinces and in the public security, the government outsources censorship to private enterprise. And so any internet service provider, any, any kind of content hosting company that's providing anything in Chinese to PRC users is required to devote resources to censoring the content. And so all businesses in China that do any kind of internet content are really subsidizing government censorship. And this includes a lot of companies that are also not Chinese companies doing, doing uh, you know, Yahoo, Google, and Microsoft all censor the internet on their Chinese services in compliance with Chinese government demands and they're devoting resources to that. Well, let me turn it around with a follow-up before we go on to the other panelists, and that is, when do you think, you know, you familiar with many, many countries that we saw from the page that Sri showed, um, when can the internet, just its mere existence, mm -hmm. help generate political change? Well, it, it definitely does 
it can be a very powerful tool in the right context. One, one example is in South Korea, where you had a situation where in, in uh, what was it, in 2002, where you had a media in South Korea that was very much dominated by one side of the political spectrum. You had an old kind of conservative political guard that was in power at the time. And you had a situation where the majority of the population was online. And you also had a large segment of the population who was dissatisfied both with the media and with the current political structure. You had a situation where you have enough freedom of speech that the government was not able to censor in the very systematic way that the Chinese government is able to get away with and other governments. Uh, and so it was possible for No Mu Hyun, who is currently president, to be elected thanks to activism and new media organizations that formed online that helped bring together both kind of the, the constituency and, and mobilize activists to, to basically help an underdog political candidate win an election. And, and so in those kinds of circumstances, certainly there are a lot of circumstances, I'm sure Sheila will talk a lot more about how the internet has been a very revolutionary catalyst in the Philippines. But I think oftentimes, I mean, the question is, does the introduction of a technology into a particular society, is that enough to create change? Or is it how do the individuals use that technology how is it possible to use that technology within the political structures, the economic structures? What percentage of the population even has access to that technology? All these factors, I think, being very important. Sheila, I sense that you want to jump in. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Sensing that right? Yes. Well, well I, I really think the question of why the web is revolutionary is a very early 21st century question, because print was very revolutionary in its day, certainly. In, um, in Southeast Asia, in Asia, anti-colonial movements depended a lot on the printed word for the dissemination of ideas. And um, can I show some slides? Because I have some, some fun um, pictures here. This was 19th century in the Philippines. People were using, were hiding um, newsletters and um, subversive novels in, in Buffalo, underneath the hay in, in Buffalo carts. And, um, this was the leader of our revolution on the right, the man on horseback. He fled um, because the revolution against Spain in 1898 was hijacked by the Americans who came to invade the Philippines. And he fled American forces with a printing press. And he issued a directive to his troops that the revolutionary newspaper should be wrapped in banana leaves because we have very wet, rainy seasons in the Philippines and distributed. He had this naive faith that the revolution would be kept alive if people read the revolutionary newspaper. Of course, the revolution was defeated by the superior firepower of uh, American troops. But yes, print was revolutionary in, in its day. And even, I think, up to the time of Václav Havel, that the Samistad newspapers in the Soviet Union relied a lot on print. But I think I'll show you some differences in the, like this is um, the Philippines in 1986, in the uprising against Marcos, where radio and newspapers played an important role. But as you can see that the vast, you know, the great shift, the quick shift in development in technology also changed the technology of protest. So that when Thailand was undergoing its own 
uprising in 1992, six years after, people were actually using mobile phones um, because the mainstream media was blocked. They were using mobile phones to tell people, you come to the protests, the police are dying, these are the police rounding up demonstrations. So just as it was fax machines in Tiananmen in 89, it was mobile phones in, um, in, in Thailand in 1992. And I think Indonesia, at least in Southeast Asia, is probably, sorry, it's not, it's probably the first example of um, directed protest. In 1998, um, there was a massive protest against President Suharto. Suharto, fortunately or unfortunately for him, created an internet backbone to connect all the islands of Indonesia. And mainly students and intellectuals were linked to that backbone. And they used the internet not so much for propagating ideas, but for coordinating nationwide protests. Because email provided them an easy way to, because telephone infrastructure wasn't that, and it was, telephones were insecure, they, they used the internet to coordinate rallies. The interesting thing here is because many people in Indonesia do not have access to the internet, what was coming out in uh, email, or uh, it was not so much websites then, but these email newsletters, what was being printed there was being printed and then zero, photocopied and sent all around. So it was the internet together with old technologies like copying machines that allowed the diffusion of ideas. So in, in just a short span of time, we saw how the technology of protests and social movements have changed. And the internet has, and mobile phones have radically also changed the way of popular mobilization and popular consciousness raising. I can, I can give you more, more examples later on how that's done. Well, l let me just follow up with both of you for one second before we move on to Chuck. Two questions. One is, to be more precise about what I asked you before, Rebecca, when can the internet be used to open up a closed society? I can see how it can be used to create political change in a society that's already open. And then the follow-up to Sheila would be, is the internet just the latest communications medium per these slides, or is there something sort of special on steroids about it in its potential to create change? Well, I think it also depends on how you define open up. I think oftentimes sort of the, the, the American perspective on China opening up would be the fall of the current regime and, and, and the creation of a regime that's, that looks more like a multi-party system. Uh, and in that sense, I mean, God knows. Um, I think China is opening up culturally and socially, and the internet may be providing the platform for an evolution over time, which, you know. So I, I apologize for not giving a very precise answer, but um, oftentimes it, it does seem that the answer depends. I, I think it also, some of the factors relate to how the technology is used. I think how coherent the government is in power in terms of preventing the technology from being used in the way that activists want to use it. Um, I, I think a good example of how email and, and messaging hasn't been successful in China is, is that after SARS broke out and people were using text messaging to disseminate information, the Chinese government developed a way to to censor text messaging. And so I think there's a factor in terms of just how together the government is in terms of its control 
as, as an opposing force. Um, I think it also depends on just what percentage of the population is in touch with this technology, is accessing this information. Um, there's, I think there's, there's just, it's hard to really generalize and, and say that, you know, here's the set of conditions that's going to work in every single country. I, th I think you, you really have to look at a whole range of factors. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the internet can open things up, but how it opens things up, how it brings, brings change, maybe you, you can't, you can't uh, set it according to a specific paradigm in every single country. Sheila, do you want to come in on the, on the question I asked? Well, well um, of course, the, the way um, state um, action, you know, the way the state has repressed media of all kinds in China is a very important factor. But I think an equal, equally important factor is the development of civil society and of mm -hmm. organized groups that are outside the state. And China so far, not well-developed civil society, whereas in Southeast Asia, you had students, you had intellectuals, you had um, advocacy groups, you had environmental groups, you had, all, you had churches, religious groups, being organized and being able to use the technology to raise consciousness and to mobilize for political action. Mm -hmm. and so back to my other question, does the internet as a medium have a sort of special power beyond each other medium as it's come along? Well, well, yes. I think speed is one thing. I think we've seen it, for example, in the uprising against Marcos. Um, I try. Uh, this, this thing is hanging. The uprising against Marcos in 1986. It was the Catholic Church that mobilized using radio, using the Catholic-run radio station, which was not controlled by the government. And the mobilization wasn't as fast enough as in another uprising that took place in the Philippines in 2001, where the mobilization was through mobile phones and through the internet, where it was in instantaneous, because not everyone is listening to the radio all the time. But with mobile phones, people can exchange information. People can, can change locations of rallies very easily. People can, uh, it's also, at least in the Philippines at that time, it was more secure, whereas a radio station can easily be found, although they, in 1980, they moved from one place to another. It was like a guerrilla radio station. But with, uh, with, with mobile phones, it's harder to find people who are sending messages to whom. So it's, it's much more, it's less prone to, um, to immediate suppression. You know, no one can close, I mean, unless people, they close down the whole telecommunications network, it's very hard to suppress. Um, information relayed through the internet or through mobile phones. So both in terms of the speed, the security of the communications, and also the interactivity. I mean, you can't talk back to your radio station, but you can ask someone, you can send an email to the website administrator, you can text back when, when a message is texted back to you. Chuck, you're essentially in the business of using the internet as a political tool and trying to create political change uh, through the internet. Um, have we got the ability to put uh, town hall back on? Or yeah, yeah, it's on. Okay, good. Um, so uh, just give us a primer on how you do it, both in the context of a political campaign, the Bush-Cheney campaign in 04, what you did there, and now what you're trying to do with this relatively new site, town hall. If you'd indulge me for a second, I, I find it fascinating and especially what Sheila was saying, how technology has served to, uh, to in, in most cases, bring political participation, uh, bring it about. Uh, it, what, what excites me about the internet, and, and as you mentioned, I've joined a talk radio company, but 
was 2004, um, is I actually would, uh, in my opinion, uh, over the last 50 years, or the latter half of the 20th century, uh, technology actually served to push people out of the political process. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a political practitioner working on campaigns and, and uh, on Capitol Hill and, and in the administration. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as a political practitioner, we've always talked about how are we going to get more people uh, involved in our campaigns and involved with our efforts. And there's no secret to the idea that political participation has grown the dock decline for decades. Uh, I think one of the best pieces of work on that was uh, Harvard's Vanishing Voter Study, I think came out in 2002, uh, post-2000 election. Um, and, and it shows up in the data in that one of the reasons and why political participation in this country is going to decline is because of broadcast television. Um, those of us who are political or practitioners, internet political practitioners, have always waited for that 1960 moment. Because it was the 1960 moment with, with the uh, Nixon-Kennedy debates where uh, folks, where television became the dominant medium, uh, the dominant technology in which uh, messages were communicated. And as television uh, as, you know, became the king, uh, the primary message in which political candidates broadcast their message, they began to look at constituents or voters as, uh, as, as an audience where they were talked at to, where they were talked to rather than having a dialogue with. And over that time, over, uh, it, it again shows up in the data, uh, where it served to push people out of the political process. And what excites me about the internet, you know, to, to answer your question again, is it, is it, is it um, something that, that can uh, motivate political change. Uh, it isn't just about um, uh, speed. It's also the velocity in which it, because it, that, it, it gather, that that information gathers as it moves and its ability to shatter you know, conventional wisdom or shatter certain opinions. Um, so going back directly to your question, uh, what, is it I, what is it that it works in this country? Um, I'll, again, I'll take a step back and say, uh, I think the first medium that was participatory, you actually can talk back to your radio. Uh, it was a powerful thing uh, in the late 1980s when conservative talk radio came about. And it was when somebody could actually pick up the phone and have their voice, have their opinion broadcast out to millions of people. Uh, that was the first time that really, uh, in that broadcast era, era where this concept of a two-way dialogue that we, that we take for granted now in the internet age, uh, really started to come about. Uh, and so uh, the opportunity that we have with Town Hall here is to combine those two platforms, the platform of talk radio, where it really is a two-way dialogue, where true, real grassroots people who have an opinion have an opportunity to participate in the debate of ideas. Uh, and the you know, we've all talked about the blogosphere, we all know what the blogosphere is, uh, and what we've literally done is combined the blogosphere. Uh, you know, if you looked on, you see our talk radio clips, if you click on the Your Blogs there. Uh, in the four months the town hall has been up, we've had 2,500 people come in and create uh, their own blogs. And if you scroll down, you'll see uh, who our top bloggers are, where they're at in the country, what issues they're blogging on, and keep scrolling down a bit, who are some of our top ones. And you'll see uh, real time, just uh, 11.21, 7.36, two hours ago, somebody, that's their most recent post. And this large community has risen up. And again, you talked about my former life. As, um, as somebody who's working for a political candidate, it was my job to create a platform in which their message was heard. 
and that it was, uh, it, we were empowering people to carry their message. How do we use the internet to carry their message? Here it's about creating a platform for, for participation. Yes, it's a conservative platform where it's a conservative community, uh, but we all know about Daily Coast and some of the others out there uh, where there are liberal communities rising up. Uh, that the internet is, is really bringing back participation that uh, I believe was lacking in the broadcast era. So just a, a little more on, on both. Specifically, if you're working in a presidential campaign, you're trying to use the internet essentially to get your candidate to win the election, what do you do? Get up in the morning, what do you do all day? Uh, here's a, I'll first say, there was a few things that we did. The two campaigns that most people were talked to, that the online efforts that were talked about were what we did at Bush Cheney uh, and the Dean effort. And they were two dramatically different um, strategies. Uh, so maybe I'm answering this at too high of a level. Yeah, no, no, that's, tell us the two different strategies. Uh, but what, um, the, the Dean campaign, and I've given presentations in classrooms before, if I had the marker board, it'd be so much easier right now. Um, but literally, it was about building a community on, their strategy, if you drew a circle around up on the marker board, uh, their, their idea was to get people to congregate on their website. And there was a true community around the Dean blog, but uh, he was pretty much an unknown entity at that time. And really what people were identifying with Howard Dean were whatever their own ideas were, or whatever the latest commenter was, or whatever the latest blog post was. And so Howard Dean was never truly defined as a candidate. Uh, so again, if I was drawing this again, was visualizing these two strategies, draw the circle which is the Dean effort and about arrows building in and creating maps there. We had a completely different strategy, which was the president was already a known entity. And the president at the time, and still does, uh, have a large base of support in this country. And he was a known entity, where we knew we were going to have a, a mass of people coming. But it was rather than about uh, getting them to congregate on our website, we were actually trying to create tools in which they could take the message uh, you know, so take the message, the president, our, you know, if I was talking to a reporter, uh, which I did talk to Tom Edsel, who was in this room earlier, uh, you know, the standard line was there's no one better to carry the president's positive message than our grassroots supporters. And what did that mean? It meant they'd come to town hall, they'd be able to create their own email list and send, send forward messages from the president. They'd come to town hall, they'd be able to create a, a, a party for the president, uh, similar to what the Dean effort had with Meetup. Uh, where I used to call it a Tupperware party for the president. You come in, there's information there, uh, but then the, that grassroots activist then has the opportunity to carry that message in. Or we also have what we call the neighbor to neighbor project, uh, where somebody could go and it, we, they would type in their postal mail address, and we'd tell them the names of 20 voters that lived around them. And again, they'd be able to go out and knock on doors and carry the president's message uh, to them. And not only carry the president's message to them, uh, but say, hi, I'm Chuck. I live three doors down. Our kids go to the same school. I share your values. I support the president. And this is why I think you should too. So this gets to a really important question about the nature of civil society and how it relates to politics. Any of you can jump in. 
Model A is the internet is actually creating virtual communities. Uh, people who are all over the place, they've never met face to face, they're never going to meet face to face, but they have a, you know, essentially a, an organization, a community organization that exists in cyberspace in virtual form. Second model would be the internet sort of gives a little uh, jolt cola drink to pre-existing organizations. Um, people, it, it's an enabler to people walking three doors down and meeting their neighbor. Uh, it's a way for uh, an, an organization that already exists to have a more powerful bond among its, 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 uh, its members. Which is it? I mean, I'm, I know you are going to want to say it's both, but, you know, if, to the extent that you can restrain yourself and sort of choose sides, does the internet create new communities that only exist on the internet and that's its primary impact on politics, or does it empower existing communities that, that are sort of more conventional? Depends on what you define. <laughs> and the honest yeah. answer it is it is that it's both. First off, I, I would yeah. when the again when the internet first kind of came on the rise in the late '90s and around the 2000 election, everybody thought about, oh, this is great. I'm going to be able to talk to somebody across the country that shares my opinion that I've never met before. And the internet still does that, and it's still great. Uh, but the, uh, what I did think was, and I got to give Scott Heffernan. Of meetup, you know, one of the first people that really, on a, on a large scale, got this. What it really did, you know, it's it's pretty well documented. He read Bowling Alone and said, "I got to go do this." Uh, what I found very fascinating is the internet also enables you to reconnect with your communities. And to answer your question more directly, the there isn't there's it's not necessarily existing institutions as we think of like the the ACLU or the NRA. You know, the, okay, those existing institutions, yeah, it could be a jolt to what their organizations are. But what I think is more interesting is that it's an enabler to people of like-minded opinions uh, to gather and really become uh, existing existing advocacy organizations. What, to me, it's it's really the explosion of, of a pluralistic pluralistic society where these old-time organizations who really were the gatekeepers of, of grassroots opinion and power. Uh, if they don't start getting the internet, they're going to start getting left behind because these communities are growing up uh, through shared ideas. Just to continue Chuck's resistance to the demand that we take sides, I, <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I think there are really two things going on here. On, on one hand, I think it, you've got direct political change, which involves different groups of people changing who's in power and, and this kind of thing. Um, then, you, on the other hand, you've got much longer-term shift in the way in which political discourse is conducted, which is much more amorphous, much harder to measure, and, and much, much harder to, to pinpoint cause and effect, and is much less immediate. And the Internet's doing both things. I, I think in order to see regime change, as it were, or administration change, change in political parties, throwing one group of people out of power, you've got to, the Internet is the glue that enables the offline action. And, and just having a community around Dean is not going to bring about a change in political parties. And, and you see this in a number of countries. Um, where you'll get a great online community around an opposition movement, but no offline 
activity particularly possible for whatever reason and not surprisingly there's no real political change on the other hand i think one one thing that chuck was talking about which is very important is the way in which the internet does enable the nature of the discourse to change and the, the fact that the age of television created this culture of lecturing to the masses and the masses just having to receive the lecture and the fact that the internet does enable more of a multi-directional non-linear conversation to be having amongst that, that citizens can have with one another that professional journalists participate to that citizens participate to that politicians participate in and which in, in which everybody is taking part and contributing to a political discourse that may result, well, number one, in the, in the public understanding, citizens understanding their environment and just their lives and the issues that affect their lives in different ways than in the past. Having a greater ability to voice their concerns that they might not have had in the past, which is part of what we're doing with Global Voices. The idea is that there's a lot of people that the media just never bothers to cover. And actually, a lot of these people are going on the internet and covering themselves. And we're trying to, we're trying to aggregate that. And that, does that mean that one political party is going to overthrow a political party or one group of countries is going to become more powerful over another as a result? Not, you know, God knows, not in the short term. But what it does mean is that the individual is more empowered to affect the discourse, which over time, I think, will have profound impact. And that's where you'll see the internet in China having had a profound impact. But it's not about the Communist Party being overthrown anytime soon. It's about, over time, the discourse and the nature of the discourse changing and people getting used to being able to debate things online with people who are much more powerful than them, than them and getting listened to and, and, and getting some notoriety over that, even if it might, they might not be allowed to talk about the most sensitive things. But it's, it's, it's two, different, two different issues, but this participatory nature of the web is, again, one of these underlying things that's more related to power and information and who frames information and who frames what is important and who frames how we understand our world which obviously has very profound long-term implications, but doesn't necessarily affect who's going to get elected next cycle or whether, you know, who's going to be in power in which regime in Southeast Asia. Sheila, you want to jump in on yeah. this? Yeah. Um, maybe I should approach this in a different way. Um, I come from a country where one in every ten is, is overseas. And the internet, in, in terms of creating new communities, just as in the 19th century novels and newspapers allowed us to imagine ourselves as a nation independent of Spain, the internet is now allowing Filipinos to think of themselves as a nation unbound, you know, linked, not linked to geography. 
so they, you can still be Filipino and be in the United States or any of those, those other countries. So in, in thinking of reimagining our community, our nation in the place of a larger global community, I think in that sense it's creating mm -hmm. new forms, yeah. new forms of community. And I think that's happening in a lot of other diaspora countries, certainly India, yeah. also China, yeah, that's, Latin America. That's, yeah. that's very true. Just, yeah. to, just to add, I mean, we're, we're finding with our project that uh, India as a concept in cyberspace, you know, there is India in cyberspace and it comprises everybody who's from India anywhere else in the world and it is a very clear community in cyberspace or the Ethiopian diaspora and, and the way in which people are able to congregate or uh, I, I know somebody from Kenya who spent a long time outside of Kenya but got very involved with Kenyan politics and has become influential because she was blogging uh, and because she was connected to the political discourse through the internet. So, so that, is, that is absolutely true. I would agree with that. Um, let me go back, Chuck, to you and just talk a little bit about Town Hall. What are you trying to do there? Another question you won't want to answer. Is it politics? Is it journalism? What is it exactly and how does it work? It's not part of a formal political campaign. I suppose it is part of a media, of a movement. How is it different from Daily Coast or is it, who, what are you trying to be and what are you? Well, let me first say, you know, the first time I met you uh, was at dinner uh, with our executive editor, Hugh Hewitt. Uh, and Hugh has, has put forth, and I, I agree with him quite a bit, this is a, uh, I'm sitting in Columbia uh, School of Journalism going to say this, uh, but it, it is there. There, it's the fallacy of objective journalism, uh, where there is no such thing as an objective journalist. They, they are always putting their opinion into the story, uh, and so Hugh, Hugh, uh, you know, put forward in, in an interview with with Nick um, that it, all journalists should just drop the fallacy and make their, uh, their, their own biases evident. Um, so you know, I, we make no, uh, you know, this is an opinion journalism site. We have over 150 conservative opinion columnists here. We also have, have Associated Press news copy. Uh, we distinctly, you know, there is a distinction between news and opinion uh, within the site, but uh, you can see that there is a conscious blurring of the line. Uh, it is what is the most relevant piece of, what we'll put up on our homepage is what is the most relevant piece of information today. It may come from a blog post, it may come from a, a talk radio interview, it may come from an Associated Press story, it may come from an opinion column. Uh, but it is about um, what is the most relevant information and the, it's up to the reader to decide you know, what they believe or don't believe. Uh, what we are, though, is representative of the broader conservative movement. Uh, if you scroll down a little bit on the home page, you'll see, if you keep scrolling down here a bit, and keep going, you'll see all these issues, judges in the courts, media and culture, jobs and economy, uh, campaigns and elections. All those links below that, there's about 125 conservative organizations that are our partners. And the links behind there are not uh, town hall links, actually. Those are links to the Heritage Foundation, the Alliance Defense Fund, uh, the ACLJ, conservative organizations that are leader, leaders in uh, the conservative movement across 
social politics, social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, and again, this is all relevant information that, that you know that's the the latest and greatest in conservative thinking. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So I mean, one of the questions, uh, and and you all should start thinking of questions because we'll go to audience questions very soon. You know, is there a vast right wing conspiracy? That is, uh, I have a conser old friend who's a conservative, prominent conservative named Tom Bethel, who you may know. Um, and uh, he used to say back in the super heyday of liberalism in America uh, liberalism works like a beehive. Uh, Nobody has to give central orders, but every worker bee somehow knows how to serve the interest of the hive. Um, there's a lot of talk among liberals, of how does this whole thing work? How do you know what to put on your site every day? Does Karl Rove call and give a conference call and say, these are the issues of the day? Or is it just like-minded individuals on the, on the hive model of my friend Tom? Or how does it work? You know, We'd be, I, I want to first say that the conservative movement, I think, you know, which dates back to the 60s, and I won't give you that historical perspective on that, but has been successful in, in moving the agenda over the last four or five decades. Uh, but we're not a monolith. If you go through, you will see plenty of contradiction and opinion. You will see George Will on here saying uh, why Iraq is a disaster. You will see Oliver North defending the president's decision to go to Iraq. You will see, uh, you know, our executive editor Hugh Hewitt, who was at the time, you know, in support of the Harriet Myers nomination. Uh, and you will see plenty of opinion uh, against that, you know, who was against the Harriet Myers nomination. That we are not the conservative movement is not a monolith. Uh, what we are is a platform for the latest ideas. And you know, I. I, I Grew up in the Midwest, but I moved to D.C. Uh, over a decade ago, and uh, always, you know, I went there because it's the arena of ideas. This is where the ideas are fought out in the arena. And what has excited me about Town Hall is there is the conservatives right now are are on this website debating policies and what is the appropriate conservative thought. Um, I'll ask one more question, so you'll get ready. And that is, uh, Rebecca, anybody else who wants to, could you talk about Iran a bit and um, mm -hmm. what the role of the internet is there in-, in Yeah, well, it's, it's been very interesting because Iran has a very active blogosphere amongst urban educated young people. And, and on Sheila's and, point, it has a sort of branch office, particularly in LA, mm -hmm. it's very, very active. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's 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 a group of bloggers in LA, you know. So, on. but uh, um, actually, it was it was quite interesting. Iran had its own Howard Dean. Um, the guy's name was Mustafa Moin. He was the presidential candidate of the bloggers' choice. Um, and and actually, it's very interesting. Again, I think Iran is another example of where, over the long run, the introduction of the internet and the introduction of a space for discourse that just wasn't possible will have very profound long-term effects. But in the short and medium term, the effects on politics are not very great. I mean, bas basically, you have a small, young, educated elite who are on the internet talking. It's not reaching the vast majority of the, of the public. Um, 
you're also having a situation where the government is sufficiently in control of, of, of offline space that it's not possible to take discourse that's happening online and mobilize offline effectively in any, any meaningful way. Iran has been taking pages from the Chinese book in terms of filtering and blocking a lot of discourse and throwing a lot of cyber dissidents in jail as well. But at the same time, the blogosphere in Iran and, and chat rooms and so on have become a place where young people can talk and meet and discuss cultural issues that hadn't been possible before. And so that people in a more broad cultural and social way feel like they're having an impact. And they did feel that the fact that at least some politicians were paying attention to what bloggers had to say, the more reformist ones. The fact that actually some of the more conservative Iranian politicians are actually now starting to use blogs as well to get their points of view out um, is seen as a step forward of sorts in, in terms of bringing that discourse onto the internet. But again, the internet did not bring political liberalization to Iran. Nobody's predicting that's going to happen anytime soon. We have a questioner. Sir. Hi, uh, I'm Brian Howard. More I'm a new media student here. Come to, the, come to the mics as you're ready. So I want to know the entire panel's opinion of the risk of these, uh, uh, especially bloggers and sort of issues-oriented, uh, ideology-oriented sites in increasing polarization. So we hear a lot in the media and I think on the streets and in the last election about uh, polarization of America and how that fits into this, uh, the, the blogosphere. There's, let me just sort of camp onto that and say there, there's a little bit of a two strains, two descriptive strains in talking about politics running through the foregoing conversation. One is to use a word Chuck used, the pluralistic strain. That is, society can be thought of as zillions of little groups sort of forming and reforming into coalitions. Um, and the other is, is uh, you know, to use Rebecca's word about discourse, that there's a kind of broad national conversation that has a certain tone and quality, and, and the tone and the place it is on the ideological ideological spectrum and so on really matters. That plays into, it seems to me, your question. I don't know the answer to the question that you're posing and I'm sort of adding an addendum to, but um, in a way it's a question of is the tone of the discourse harsher? In a way it's a question of is how important is national discourse versus all these little groups, which the littler they are, the more they tend to shout, in a sense. If, if I could just say something. Um, I, I think a lot of people, when talking about the blogosphere in the US, are really only talking about a very small part of it, which is those bloggers who are talking and arguing about national politics. And yes, there's a lot of flame wars going on and, and it, it, it is pretty polarized. But you also look at, a, at what's happening in a lot of communities. And there are a lot of small and medium-sized cities that are developing blogospheres. And for the most part, those 
community discourses are not so polarized. In fact, what's happening in a lot of communities is that people are s simply starting to talk about stuff that their local papers just never bother to cover, um, or, or issues that, that the media had not really provided any platform for because nobody had found advertising revenue in, in that particular subject before or whatever it is. I mean, in, in Massachusetts, in Watertown, there's, there's a, a group of people who set up a blog called H2O Town to basically cover their community because their local paper was so crap, you know. And, and it, it has created, um, I mean, sure, there, there are Democrats and there are Republicans and people argue, but it, it, it has created a place for people to exchange information about their community that just didn't exist before. Now, is this politically transformative or what is it? Um, I don't know. It's, it's been, always been a liberal town. It continues to be a liberal town. Uh, but does, is it improving people's quality of life somehow? Is it making people feel that they have a bit more control over what they know and how information gets used. It probably is having a long-term, and what, does, what kind of impact do these types of things have in aggregate all <coughs> over the country? You know, that's, that's something for political scientists to measure. So, so there's that going on. Then there's, you know, Daily Coast and Instapundit and Hugh Hewitt and, and everybody else who are kind of yelling at each other on the national level. But I guess the other question is, is, is the blogosphere polarized because blogospheres are always polarized? Or is, it, is the blogosphere polarized on the national level because our country is polarized and ergo the national level blogosphere is polarized? Because it, again, if, if you look at the way in which blogospheres in different countries have evolved, the extent to which they're polarized really depends on the nature of the politics, whether there are certain groups who feel that they're shut out of the media for whatever reason. There's, again, all kinds of different factors. So I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not saying that it's not polarized. I'm, I'm not passing a value judgment on whether it's good or bad that it's polarized, but I'm saying that I think there are some people who blame blogs for polarization or equate blogs with polarization or equate internet discourse with polarization. I, I think that is probably oversimplistic. I agree with 99% of what Rebecca just said. I'll just take it one step further and say, I actually think it's healthy. Because what it, again, it goes back to this participation. The, the, the only opportunity, the, the only other thing is apathy. And I don't want an apathetic electorate. I, you know, I'll defend your right to, you know, I. I don't agree with anything you know Daily Coast really has to say, but I completely agree with his right to do it. And I'm actually excited to see that these communities are rising up and these people are becoming engaged. It's what I've made my vocation. Uh, I've made my life out of politics. I'm that passionate about it. And what I'm even more passionate about is getting other people involved. And where do you get most of your news, personally? Uh, where I personally? Townhall.com. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'll, yeah, honestly, I wake up in the morning, I get the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. I will scan those in the morning, uh, but then I, I live a lot of time on, uh, I, I actually have my homepage set to Yahoo's most popular news. <laughs> I find it fascinating to see what everybody else on Yahoo wants to see. And do you think if a lot of people have Town Hall as their homepage, are they going to get enough? a well-balanced uh, news digest if that's the only site they look at. Well, first off, again, it goes back to that question of um, do I think that, are they going to get what's the most relevant news in the political space today? 
Uh, yeah, uh, from a conservative perspective. And I, and I said this in other venues, uh, and uh, the, the American electorate is smart. They will make their choices. Uh, I'm, of course, we're going to be putting out a conservative perspective, but as I said earlier, the perspective isn't necessary. We're not a monolith. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're going to go back and, and do exactly what we're like drones. If, if I could just add to that, um, what you're alluding to is also um, it relates to to a political scientist, Cass Sunstein, and his his book, The Daily Me, and this idea that the more people get their news from the internet, the more they're going to only be focused on what they want, and they're they're not going to have this serendipitous effect of encountering opinions and information that might not be in their immediate sphere or might not agree with them. There was a study about a year ago, I believe it was, done by um, Pew, the Pew Internet Project. And they, they looked, they, they actually tested this out. You know, is it the case, you know, if, if, you, if you survey, they surveyed lots of people and, and, you know, surveyed people who were only getting their news from newspapers and TV and then those who were using the Internet uh, for a lot of their news, and they actually found that those people who used internet to get their news tended to seek out alternative opinions on the whole more than people who were just watching TV, particularly those who were just watching TV. And, and then I think newspapers was, was somewhere in between, if, if I recall properly. But, you know, this again comes to the point that we were probably at a low point when the, the vast majority of people, having worked in TV for 12 years, I'm saying this too, we were at a low point when the vast majority of Americans were relying on TV for their news, and the, the, the faster we get away from that, the better. Um, <laughs> let me go to the next questioner, sir. Um, yeah, yeah, my question would be uh, somewhat relevant what Kabul uh, conference was uh, uh, 10 days ago. And it was reminded about 68 when there was a revolution and they wrote the charter. And his colleagues were arrested and jailed. Uh, but more interesting was uh, that uh, some Russian dissidents went to the uh, Red Square and were protesting this invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, so it was in the time of 68. Uh, before was 56 when uh, there was a story with Hungary. Uh, so what I am referring to, to solidarity case, that Russians went uh, to Moscow Square, were arrested, jailed, etc. And Havel remembered them, and he invited them over uh, when he was a president. Uh, nowadays, I was on the panel, on your panel, Shiller, when uh, there was a story about uh, censorship and about uh, endangered species uh, journalists. And the reference was uh, one particular one, and the guy was Gangadze, and his widow was here, and he was internet journalist, essentially internet journalist in Ukraine. And after that, there was a revolution there, Orange Revolution, which is now collapsing, and you know all the other stuff, right? But that's again, the case of solidarity, what the influence internet did have. The case more uh, really current is about the lady, Anna Politkovska, and I mentioned to someone, who was also internet investigative journalist, essentially, regardless that it was published press. But mostly in Russia, the free press is going through internet, not through television, definitely it's like Fox, forget it, you know, you just get what is there. Uh, and my question about really coming 
uh, my sense was after your panel and uh, the question that I sense the impotence of the people involved in the panel what to do, how to do. And uh, a reporter sense uh, without borders in uh, uh, Paris, right? They started something. They started the protests, whatever, but it looks like a PR campaign more. They wanted to investigations that would be international by journalists uh, uh, appealing to, would it be European court, or would it be here, United Nations? But uh, your panel was essentially uh, censorship. And it comes, I know very well, I'm a blogger myself, you know, I know that I have a web designer, the name of technologist, I very well know Rebecca's work, and I do know what she has done in, in her institute, better to say, yeah, law school, in establishing critiques that brought the, I hope, the bill uh, that will uh, uh, punish, uh, would it be uh, uh, Yahoo, would it be uh, principal, you were more, I was more intrigued with your CISC involvement. Let's uh, take us to the question though, okay? Yeah, the question, the question uh, really, she could uh, elaborate what is the, the status of, uh, you know, with the bill. And to Sheila is really what you can do because uh, as a journalist, you know, really what effect and uh, why I referred to Havel and to Russians who went to uh, jail for him. It's a time, you know, you see electorate now in America waking up and protesting, but journalists to me sort of impotent breed here, you know, and not only here, but you know, and essentially PRist. Even I appreciate your comment and uh, agree with a lot what you were writing, you know, Nick, about bloggers who are, you know, making a career of this uh, studio journalist. And uh, I could have uh, been Russian. I know how a lot of bloggers, they are just pure fascists, you know, and they're using uh, Western technology uh, to play that game. But my question really, what could be done by you, okay. journalists, to protect your breed? Let's go to mm -hmm. our panel. Sheila, you want to start? Or? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, journalists can protect themselves, of course, by taking precautions, by every, but, you know, the whole impunity issue is very real in many countries around the world. The killers of journalists have not been brought to, to, to jail, they've not been prosecuted, they've not even been arrested. And unfortunately, I think that will also be the case with Anna Politskaya, just as it was the case with uh, Klebnov. And as it is in the case of two dozen journalists in the Philippines and maybe three dozen in uh, Latin sure, America. I uh, disagree because the journalists in Europe protested vigorously but unfortunately, it become a little bit of PR campaign, yes. you know. But uh, I, I don't, I do believe that the case of Politkovska, by the way, she's an American citizen. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, as was uh, uh, Paul Klebnikov. Yeah. And uh, is, is this sense of uh, powerlessness, and you know that it was from Forbes, was the guy. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and his, uh, you know, the well, journalists have been making noise, all the big international yeah. journalists associations, CPJ, RSF, Amnesty, Inter everyone has been making noise about but, these look, killings. There is but, a dean yeah. of school here of journalists. <laughs> That's true. And Havel himself, why yeah. are you referring to Havel? Yeah. He's really capitalizing on his political capital, including our president here. <laughs> but the time, you know, to speak and talk his consciousness, who is doing well, and I'm referring to Rebecca because she's also risking her life going now, not to China, but never saw her. She's in a risky business. China is not really, uh, as we say, a carnival. You know, and that's why you have to protect it. What I'm referring, why I'm asking her to, uh, to comment. It's really about our business, about our freedom, you know, to protect, uh, 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 prevent censorship in China and prevent 
Cisco, who is a created infrastructure, not content, but the whole network infrastructure globally, where all the mechanism of censorship exists, police censorship. And that's, that's why, you know, I, I think what she's introducing with her institute there and the boss is extraordinarily important. And I would commend that, uh, my next question to you, you should be taking leaders well. And with Havel, you are in a position to protect the journalist who was dead, I mean killed, murdered, and not only, it's a systematic, systematic, uh, you know, onslaught there. And that's the reason I refer to the guy, Gangadze. Yeah, happily enough, they had a revolution which collapsed now, but he was an internet journalist, you know, and that's how uh, it, it created the whole uproar. You know. Okay, well, I'm, I'm listening to yeah. your advice and... Yeah. and, and, and the reason, because for me it's a conference, it's not just a question and answer More comments on this? Well, just to, as sort of in a, to take it in a certain direction, the gentleman asked, you know, what should journalists be doing to protect or to fight for freedom of speech or to, to take the press in, in a more positive direction and, and given that there are a lot of students here. Um, I, I think that one reason why the blogosphere has become extremely appealing to a lot of people and has seemed to, has developed amongst a lot of people more credibility than a lot of publications have amongst a lot of people has to do, I think, in part with the stance that individual journalists are or are not taking about the directions that their news organizations are taking. And that professionally over the years I've encountered a lot of people working for a range of news organizations that will have had stories, and I'm talking American news organizations, that have felt uncomfortable about the directions their editors were pushing them in, were uncomfortable about the fact that their editors were not interested in having them pursue certain stories that they thought were very important and just, you know, sucked it up and continued on because they wanted to stay employed. And I think we do need to be asking ourselves, why are we being journalists and why are we not just going to work for PR firms and making a lot of money? I mean, if, you know, if, if, you're, if your point is staying employed. But, I, I mean, it just, it, just to give a concrete example, um, when I was in Pakistan after 9-11, I, I was sent to Pakistan for, for about six weeks, and we were told by the head of CNN at the time to stop doing so many stories about Afghan casualties because this was ups upsetting to American audiences. Yeah, I and, mean, I, and I, you know, but, but the, point, the point is... We're not here know, to have that fight. Being, I will say to you, yeah. I've been a journalist for 30 years. That's never happened to me even once. You're lucky. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm lucky. Yeah. I, I would say... It's happening to a lot of people. Okay, and and when, when journalists are not pushing back, I think the entire... The entire profession is losing a lot of credibility and I'm one of these people I do not for the record think that bloggers should replace all professional journalists I think we have the potential for a much healthier discourse online that has room for for everybody but I think that the profession is losing a lot of credibility because a lot of journalists 
are not standing up for what they believe in. Yeah, I mean, this is slightly a conversation for another day, and we have another question. I'll give you two quick comments based on a lifetime in journalism starting at age 17. One, the pressure is way more commercial than True. No, than, a lot of the reason political. for that, even and particular pressure, was commercial, but it, it gets intermixed. But in other words, the, the experience that MSM journalists tend to have is you can say whatever the hell you want about the holder of political power, but if you want to talk about the department store, <laughs> look out. I admit they, they go together, but, but you know, that again, I've never had anyone say to me, you can't say this because it's politically incorrect by the standards of the publication. On the other hand, you know, there are these sort of jurying mechanisms in society. The New Yorker, my place where I work now, publishes one probably thousandth of a percent of what's submitted to it. So, you know, the boss is going to say it's all quality. The millions and millions of people who have their work rejected every, you know, in the course of a year are going to say, no, it's not. It's, you know, they have a point of view that they're imposing. It's, it's very hard to adjudicate you know, that argument. Um, our friend Jay Rosen says, I do not have access to the New York Times op-ed page because of my political views. Do you, do you agree or, you know, it's, it's a tough call because there's such a narrow funnel. Um, and the great thing about the internet is it's sort of... It is a tough call, but I think professional journalists in many organizations have become way too passive. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I have taken objectivity too far to be yeah. just do whatever your boss tells you. We'll, ha we'll have another panel on that one. Um, Thank you. Um, my name is Thessaly LaForce. I wanted to ask a question relating back to the technology itself, um, since we are talking about the internet. I wanted to know, you guys all speak about the interactivity, but when you mentioned how the internet came on the scene in China and how it, it slowly sort of quelched all that optimism about changing the regime because of how the structure of the technology changed and how how open it was for people. And I want to know what you three have to, or four have to say about how interactivity and discourse could change due to structural or technological changes. So like copyright or DRM or net neutrality and so on. Rebecca, you're probably the first person on that one. Huh? Well, yeah, this is, this is again where the way in which those in power manipulate the technology can matter ultimately and make a big difference in the outcomes. I'm not as much of an expert on the net neutrality debate as many other people, but the essence of the argument is do you allow equal access, you know, if, if a particular provider is giving you for a particular subscription rate access to content, should certain content get preferred treatment in terms of your speed of access to that content over others, uh, or should all content be, be treated equally? And there are a lot of these types of debates, or, you know, to what extent can I use a broadcast from the nightly news and remix it and create a political economy, a, a political commentary without being sued for copyright? How long will I be able to keep it up on YouTube before it gets taken down? To what extent should I have the right to be able to use those things that some people say are copyrighted as part of a political discourse? Um, 
And yes, these outcomes do matter, and, and I think they do impact the ultimately what people are able to talk about, how they're able to talk about them, how issues get framed, to what extent certain images get burned into people's heads or forgotten, um, all that, how many eyeballs interact with what. It, it, it does have a great deal of impact. I mean, in, in China now, you, you have a situation in the universities where internet access is free for all students, but only the Chinese internet. If you want international internet access, you have to pay. And so that's beyond sort of the filtering that happens even if you're on the, inter the, the, the you know, internationally accessible internet in China. And so there are all kinds of ways in which those who hold power, not only political but economic and power of the legal system, can structure things to do their damnedest to minimize or just because they want to profit, but the desire to profit might create situations where disruptive speech is less likely to be possible or less likely to, to be seen and heard. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's absolutely, well, it's, it's all connected. It's, it's, it's all connected together, but it, it is absolutely political. Um, to come back to this, this gentleman's point, um, it, is, it, it also has to do with choices that companies are making and how socially responsible companies are, are choosing to be. I mean, it, increasingly, there's a concentration of companies who have increasing control over our identities and our ability to communicate with people we want to communicate with and you know, storing our photos, storing all our important documents, our searches, everything, our interaction with reality. And if a company just says, okay, I go into a particular market, I do whatever the government tells me to do, and that enables the fragmentation or the, the limiting of discourse in a particular market, should that company care? Is that part of their responsibility? The gentleman referred to a, a bill that's now in, in Congress called the Global Online Freedom Act, which would basically make it more difficult for American companies to comply with censorship requirements in a range of countries. Um, and so there are questions of should you legislate this? How does the political mix work out? I actually think that bill, the way it's structured right now, not to get into details, is not ideal because it makes it seem as if the problem is only in a certain range of countries and we don't have that problem in the United States and in Europe where we do. Uh, and, and that I think if there's going to be legislation, it needs to be much more global rather, rather than that particular form. But. Um, yeah, there, there is definitely, there's, there's legal fights, there's political fights, there's technological fights. There's, there's a group of, there are a number of nonprofit organizations primarily uh, that are basically cyber activist organizations that are developing tools to try and help people in China, in Vietnam, in Iran, in many other places get around the censorship more easily. And so, again, 
there's, there's a bit of a technological arms race going on as well. So, so there are all these different things going on at the same time. Uh, you're going to be our last question, but a couple of comments from the pa other panelists. Real quick, you, you asked the question, what's going to be the driver, at least here in the United States, and I've probably said it broadly. Technology is always going to outpace the lawmaker's ability to regulate. Has been, and it's only even more true in the Internet age. So when you, when you think about, uh, I think you mentioned the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and some of the other stuff. Uh, they are still, you know, it, it was outdated within a year of it being printed. I mean, it, their ability to actually catch up with it. And, uh, you know, Nick brought up commercialism is driving, it, the commercial interest. It, the net neutrality debate, it's commercial interests that are driving that. Uh, the moment um, Napster became, the, the BMIs of the world made a, made a choice that we can't co-opt it, we're going to kill it. That's when the technology started. It was the commercialism stuff that's driving. First technology comes first. Then the commercial interest makes a decision on what they think of it. And then the lawmakers react. Uh, in the YouTube, uh, who's the guy that owns the Dallas Spurs that started? Uh, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban said, You're an idiot. You know, it's fools. YouTube is fool's gold. Right now, the, uh, I also think, in the, again, Columbia School of Journalism, the concept of who gets fair use the, mm. the fair use right now. Some could argue what, what those YouTube clips, mm. is, those little copyrighted things, are, are those people journalism journalists now? And do they get fair use? It's a very fascinating question to me. And so uh, I think those kind of little debates uh, are going to um, are going to determine the future of those technologies. First, the, the order is always going to be technology first, commercial second, lawmakers third. Uh, sir, last question. Hi, uh, good evening. I'm Kelvin Ng from Singapore. I would just like to bring you uh, an example from Singapore where a local writer under the alias of Mr. Brown, he wrote oh, yeah. a social commentary yeah. uh, in the a Singapore paper, which is heavily censored by the government. And he was fired from his job. Then he has since relegated his social commentary into uh, the web blog. And he's been reduced to social satire because a lot of the times what you put on a blog is not peer-reviewed, it's not edited by a senior editor. And how do we stop this um, degradation of uh, political participation in countries like Singapore where access to the internet is hardly censored at all, but print media is heavily regulated? And more importantly, uh, on the web blog, it seems nowadays that uh, political participation in the uh, blogosphere, it's a matter of who can shout the loudest and shout the other voice out. And how do we prevent this uh, political fragmentation on the blogosphere, whereas uh, we see no other um, means to go about it in print media where it's heavily regulated by the government? Sure. Yeah, let, let me just say that I was, I was in fact thinking of Singapore when, when this question was asked. Singapore is sort of the counterintuitive example about the internet opening up spaces and technology right. being a liberating tool. In Singapore, it's, technology has been an instrument of control mm -hmm. and the government has been very good at, at that and being ahead of the technology. In fact, encouraging internet access which also allows it to get much more information on its citizens. Most of the government in Singapore is online right. and it has records of just about every parking violation. It's the most wired country and the mm -hmm. most technologically controlled country. I think it's almost frightening and that's one vision of the future actually. Um, 
all of us being robots controlled by some big internet machine out there run, run by, by the state. And, and, and Sing Singapore is that, and China is trying to be that, but it, it's difficult because it's a much larger country. And my only solution to that is really, it's really, you, you need civil society, and there, civil society doesn't exist in Singapore. It's, it's a one-party state. So would you say uh, our current like, blogosphere of political participation is merely a reflection, a reflection of our of failed the, civil society? Yes, yes. And not the other way around? Right. Yes, I think well, so. Yeah. I have a couple points I want to make and throw a question back to you about this. First of all, you know, echoing what Rebecca said, it, it's a caricature to say the blogosphere is all a bunch of ranters. Um, it has a generally somewhat different tone of voice from like NPR, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of blogs. 14 million in, in the US or something? 57 million. So a lot, a lot, a lot of things happen in the blogosphere in different tones. And second, here's the more sort of profound question that I would throw back to you. I'm oversimplifying a little, but not totally. If you have um, a system of sort of civil discourse that tends to be associated with a sort of establishment, top-down sort of discourse right. of the sort that various of our panelists have condemned, and lowering rates of political participation. If you have a cacophony of uncensored voices, mm -hmm. they tend to shout more. Um, I think it may be kind of an either or. If you look at American politics, it seems a pretty clear, at least surface correlation that the cleaner, the more orderly, the more reasoned politics is, the more political participation goes down, the dirtier and nastier it is, the more participation goes up. The highest political participation in American history was in the late 19th century when politics by our standards was quote unquote worst. Everybody was screaming at everybody else, everybody was doing graft, there was no civil service, et cetera. So in Singapore, for instance, if print is tightly controlled, if the blogosphere is kind of the wild west, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you'd lose something if civility entered the blogosphere. What do you think about that? Uh. I would agree with your point that if it, uh, the blogosphere was the Wild West in comparison to regulated print media, then we definitely need an avenue where there's political participation. But it seems like uh, in this Wild West where there's all this mess and all these shouting voices, how do you uh, sustain arguments? How do you know who has their facts, right? Uh, where do they get their sources from? It's more often when people blog, it's a lot based on personal opinion. And I think it's very dangerous for us to base our political knowledge and political participation on somebody else's belief and opinion. Whereas uh, within the regulated media, at least there's a senior editor, there are peer reviews to at least, although it's not the perfect situation, at least there's some standard of control. Well, that is a great topic for the next, uh, that's one of the big topics in the history of journalism, and let's do a panel on it. But with, I promise we'd end at quarter of nine. It is quarter of nine. Uh, so thanks very much to our panelists. Thank thanks to the audience. Um, and thanks for your very good question.